Good morning, family. How's everyone? All right, good deal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for just this opportunity just to come before you and to hear your word, Father. I pray that I would be reduced, that by your spirit, Lord, Christ would be exalted. I ask that you would prepare each of our ears, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us, Father, uniquely and specifically, Lord, and that you might be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First John chapter 4, verse 13 to 15, although we'll be focusing on verse 14, but I just want to read 13 to 15. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Today is Christmas Eve. (laughs) And as a result, I want to reflect on my childhood. Growing up, there were two things that I really loved. One was hip-hop and the other was Christmas. If you want to hear about my love for hip-hop, we can talk about it another time. But Christmas, that was my thing. I grew up in L.A., but I, want to re- but, but, but I remember several occasions my dad would drive us out to these tree farms. And we'd select and cut down the tree of our choice and throw it in his truck or on the top of, of, of the car or in our camper somewhere. I don't know how he did that. But um, then we would take it to get it flocked. You guys know with like the white stuff on it, like we really lived in a place where it snowed. <laughs> and we set it up in the house. After we got home, my mom, who she had some of the most beautiful um, Christmas ornaments, she would orchestrate our decorating of the tree, and she would make Christmas for the family. I remember lights and stockings and presents and fireplaces and food and family and friends. But what I remember most is the Christmas music that I would play year-round Shout out to Jackson Randall. And I also remember the Christmas cartoons. As a kid, I was not a big fan of the traditional or contemporary Christmas movies like It's a Wonderful Life, not my thing. Miracle on 34th Street, never saw it. The Preacher's Wife, some of you guys never heard of it. Or even Home Alone. They were were not my thing. My favorite movies were the cartoons like Fat Albert Christmas Special, (laughs) Frosty the Snowman, Santa Claus is coming to town, and my favorite, a Charlie Brown Christmas. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) All right, I see you, man. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like many of you, I love the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And if you're not familiar with it, you heard my my brother say yes. Apple TV, 25 minutes. Great investment. (laughs) Although this was produced in 1965, I have to confess that it was not until I was an adult, and I was an adult believer, actually, that I realized when an exasperated Charlie Brown asked the question, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? That Linus, his only true friend, proceeds to take the stage and gives a monologue of Luke 2, verse 8 to 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
After delivering, after delivering this legendary animated television mic drop moment, Linus turns and says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Not only does he say that, then what he does, he throws his blanket over his shoulder, sticks his thumb in his mouth, and went on about his business. I'm like, wow. If I could always be that purposeful and just tell folks the truth and keep it moving. Instead, what happens to me and possibly what happens to some of you is I get so caught up in mental gymnastics of second-guessing myself or thinking about how I may come across or worrying about the using the right words in the right tone. Linus just said what God said from the Scripture. In a cartoon or in real life, that's always enough to be effective. The crux of the monologue is this, in this, in this piece where it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ our Lord. Our conversation today is going to focus on our Savior, Jesus our Savior. In this gospel, Luke relays a powerful truth about, the sh- about what the shepherds saw and about what they heard. He provides specific details and accurate information regarding the birth of Jesus. Yet despite how credible Luke is in his testimony, the fact remains that Luke was not there. He did not know Jesus personally, and he is not a primary source. In our text this morning, I want us to think through the statement about our Savior, not made by Luke, but the one made by the Apostle John. John is a primary source and had firsthand knowledge and interaction with Jesus. According to Charles Spurgeon, John was the youngest of the 12 disciples, and he was speculated to be between the ages of about 16 and 18. Some folks say a little bit older. But as the brother of James, he was one of the first four disciples called. John saw Jesus' life. John saw Jesus' ministry. He saw his death. He saw his resurrection and his ascension. He was with our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was also with Peter when he ran to the empty tomb, although John didn't go inside. He is also the author of the Gospel of John, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. John was connected. He was a first-hand source. In 1 John 1, we read this. That which was from the beginning, these are John's words, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Verse 3, we proclaim to you that that what we have seen, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. John's excitement about Jesus is almost palpable. You can kind of hear this youthful enthusiasm, and I don't know how old he was when he wrote this, but you can still hear this youthful enthusiasm. And three times in in this first part of of, of chapter 1, three times we read the word proclaim, which means to report, to make known, to openly declare, to share the news. This letter is believed to be written to the church at large, but some say to a very select group of disciples or or a a very select group of folks who, who John was connected to. But John declares, as he says, he makes this statement, he says, we. He declares himself to be part of a group of individuals, although we indicates he and other disciples that were primary sources capable of providing firsthand testimony regarding the person and the work of Jesus. The word used here for testify describes someone trustworthy to affirm something important or amazing that has been seen, 
heard, or experienced. In verse 1, John is proclaiming his physical interaction with the word of life. His physical interaction with Jesus, Yeshua. In verse 2, John is proclaiming that Jesus is the eternal life that was with the Father. And then in verse 3, John is proclaiming his experience so that other believers who were not there, and he is passionately proclaiming this, so that other believers who were not there can share in the fellowship, vicariously and ultimately spiritually. John wants the believers he is writing to, as much as possible, to feel like they were there with him. In verse 4, he said he is writing to make this, he said he is writing this to make his joy complete. But wait, it gets better. In our passage in 1 John 4, verse 14, John gets even more specific as he tells us what he has seen and what he is testifying to. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. John's testimony is that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This phrase, Savior of the world, is only used in this context, or only used in this way, one other place in Scripture, and that's in the book of John, actually chapter 4. As we read this, and we read the Luke passage, and then we read the John passage, there's a couple of nuances in the, in the original language that show up clearly in English that make what we read in this statement of 1 John distinctly different from the statement we read in Luke. All right, now, and I want you to kind of ride with me here. Luke 2 says, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. However, within our text in 1 John 4.14, the translators of 1 John 4.14 use the article the or the in stating the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Luke 2, a Savior is born. John 4.14, the Savior of the world. The passage literally reads the Son Savior, not a Savior, as if he was one among many, but the one and only Savior. The Ro- and this is the wild part. The Roman emperors, they were called saviors. Thus, there were many Roman saviors. Some of the Jewish patriarchs and judges were considered to be saviors. And various other cultures and religions, they have folks who they consider to be saviors. But let's be clear. There is only one divine savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 clearly states, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is a savior in and unto himself. Totally unique, not to be compared nor classified with any of the other saviors. Staying in this comparison and contrast mode for these two verses, the way I understand what I kind of read it and, and, and just kind of studying it out is that in Luke 2.11, what we're emphasizing is the name that we, that we would call Christ the Lord. Luke 2.11, it says, a Savior is born. No, it says, let, let me just say it and let me read it. That would be, make it a lot easier, right? Um, Luke 2.11 is basically saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That, what we're seeing right here in Luke is that Luke is, is, is making the statement as if he's naming. Um, the verse, this verse in, two, in Luke 2.11 focuses on who and what Jesus is as a doer of an action. He's the Savior. He's the doer of an action. However, in 1 John 4.14, where he is called the Savior of the world, the focus is on what he does as Savior for the receiver of the action, which is in this case the world. 
Although world may seem like a broad and general term, throughout Scripture we are reminded that God's care and love for mankind is targeted and specific for those who he has called. I, I want that to rest with you for a minute, kind of like we rest meat when we cook, like let it rest so the juices can flow. Think about this for a second. He is the Savior of the world, but specifically for those of us who have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, he is your Savior. How often do we look in the mirror and just think about the fact that, Lord, you love me enough to die for me? It wasn't just all of us. It wasn't just all your believers. Literally, you, in, in, in the annals of time or however you did this, Father, you said Darren early. That's a different kind of experience to think about. And, and, and it's funny because when my children were young and we would discuss the gospel message, often they would say, Jesus died for our sins. And although this is correct, I would always push them to replace our sins with my sins. So they would think of salvation in a very personal way, not theoretical, not intellectual, not hypothetical, not generally, but personal. John had this personal experience, and he was passionate about it. And as we think about a personal relationship with Christ, it, 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 it exudes or, or it elicits in us this passion to share this message, this passion to talk to folks about this truth, about the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world, but specifically for the world that includes me. It's not like he's scooping a bunch of rocks, and the ones in the scoop just happen to get saved. He meticulously and carefully has chosen which rocks, because we sometimes act like a box of rocks, um, he which rocks that he's going to save. In doing so, Jesus is the Savior of me, individually and specifically. He's the Savior of you, individually and specifically. Know that you are loved. Know that you are loved. He is the Savior. Think about this. The Most High God, the sovereign of the universe, maker of the heavens and the earth, sent his son to be your savior. This is what we are seeing emphasized by John in this verse. I think about a, a passage in, in Genesis chapter 16 when um, Hagar is fleeing from Sarah and she encounters the angel of the Lord. And she calls the angel of the Lord El Roy or El Roy. It means the God who sees. She gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Do you think about the fact that God sees you? As we're challenged, as we're, as we're challenged, as we're struggling, as we have things going on in our life, God sees you. When we're celebrating, when we're arrogant, God sees you. When, we, when, when folks on the street who need our help and, and we walk past or folks over here who need our help and we go support, God sees you. He is the God who sees the Most High sending his son, sending his son to save us, this is directly in line with the fact that God sees, and it's directly in line with the fact that God loves. Folks, Jesus is not a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. So let us take the remaining time to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of Savior. The word that's translated Savior is soter. This word means deliverer, rescuer, or preserver from disease, ills, or hurt. This is not something that is in time. This is something that's in eternity. I'm looking up here and I'm reading, and we were testing the mic earlier, and, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we think in terms of him being <laughs> Savior, 
the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word means deliverer, rescue, and preserver from disease, ills, and hurt. We said that. But last week, Fred Sanders did an excellent job with John 1.4. Actually, John 1.14, I apologize. And he created for us a picture for the word becoming flesh. I don't know if he said, did he say floored or wish? He said something crazy like that. But it was, I, I got the picture, and we had the clay and this, that, and the other, and you couldn't mix it together. But the point is just this. He explained how in the incarnation, Jesus remained truly God while becoming fully man, and he never fused the two natures. The Heidelberg Catechism clarifies why this hypostatic union, and that's what it's called, was necessary in order for Jesus to be the Savior. Listen to this, and I'll try to make sure I don't mess this up. All the theologians in here, correct me later. To save us, Jesus had to be a true man because God's justice demanded that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for others. Isn't that wild? You got to do something that you're not able to do. Jesus had to be true God so that, the, so that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. You have to do something that you're not able to do, and then it has to be at a level that you're not able to. It's crazy. Essentially, Jesus had to be a God-man because a man owed the debt, so a man had to pay the debt that was owed, but, could not pay, but it could not be paid by an unrighteous man, nor could a man bear the internal weight of God's wrath. I'm not sure if I got that right, and I'm going to encourage you to go back and just kind of look at that. But the point being is just this, is that in order for him to save us and to save us eternally and to save us from the wrath of God, he had to be the Word made flesh. He had to be the God-man. To fully understand Jesus as Savior, we also need to have a clear understanding of our condition. We like to think that our condition is, you know, that old book, I'm okay, you're okay? Just a little bit of problems here, you know, just a little tweak. We like to think that our condition is okay, and we just need a little tweaking here and there in order to be right before God, in order to please God. But unfortunately, saints, this is not the case. And in the words of one of my heroes of the faith, Dr. John Perkins, we are jacked up. We are literally jacked up. All humans, all includes you and me, are rebellious sinners by nature. And voluntarily, that's crazy. We think that we were looking for God. No, we voluntarily separate ourselves from God. Because God is holy, he will punish all sin, leading to eternal condemnation and separation from him. Paul actually says all of our works are trash. And then scripture concludes that if left to our own devices, we have a first-class fast pass to hell. Without Jesus, we are spiritually helpless, enslaved by sin, and cannot ever bridge the gap between God's holiness and our unrighteousness. Without Jesus, we cannot be reconciled to God. We cannot be saved. Because we are fallen sinners who are alienated and enemies of God, everything else in our life is out of whack. Our decision-making out of whack. Our emotions and our emotional state, out of whack. Our relationships, our finances, out of whack. Our physical and mental health, out of whack. Our character, our values, our understandings, our affections, how we look at our success, how we understand our failures, all this stuff is out of whack because we're not in line with the Savior. Raise your hand if you're a human being, or if you've ever seen one. Uh, cool. 
Each of you that raised your hand, each of us that raised our hand, we need rescuing. We need deliverance. We need salvation. Some of you have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Some of you have not. And I would encourage you to understand that the gospel is for all of us. For believers, it's a reminder. For unbelievers, it's an exhortation. It's good information. It's a truth that without it, hell is your home. Jesus provides in every area of need. During this time of the year when our culture focuses a lot on giving, I want us to think about the fact that taking time to know what people need and then giving them that gift, this is a love action. Not just giving them what you want to give them, not just giving them what you, what you, what you feel good about or what you want to spend the money on or whatever the case is. Giving them what they need is a love action. The Father knew what mankind's condition was and what we needed. So as an act of love, Jesus was sent to save. Period. Full stop. He was sent to save. Through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus satisfied all that the Father had required of mankind. He fully satisfied the demands of God. And Acts 10.43 says that each of us who believes and trusts in his finished work has the righteousness of Jesus imputed or credited to our account, and thus we are saved. All that Jesus done, all that Jesus did, as we have trusted in that and believed in that, literally has been credited to our account. Hebrews 7.25 says, and it kind of adds to this, it says, and I'm reading an Amplified Bible version, therefore, because all that Christ has done has been credited to our account, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. I remember I used to read that. I was like, what the heck does uttermost mean? To the uttermost. He is able to save completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. Those who come to God through him, since he is always, I'm sorry, he's able to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. Those who come to God through him, since he is always living to make petition to God, and intercede with him and intervene for them. In Christ, folks, we are completely saved from sin, past, present, and future. Our Lord doesn't partially do the job. He does it perfectly, finally, and for all time. There is no expiration date on our salvation. There is no limited warranty with a list of exceptions on our salvation. In Christ, we have been justified, sanctified, and glorified. Take a second. Romans 5, 9. We are told that believers have been justified by his blood and saved from the punishment of God, which is the penalty for sin. So his death on the cross, his shedding of blood, saved us from the penalty of sin. But wait, there's more. In Titus 3, we get an understanding of our sanctification, wherein we are set apart and saved from the power of sin as we are equipped to live lives that glorify the Father as we are freed from the power of sin in our lives. Sometimes we just, oh, I just, no, understand what Scripture says. In Christ, we have been sanctified. We have been saved from the power of sin. Christ has given us, well, God has given us in Christ, and Christ on our behalf executes the ability to overcome. Um, William Barclay states this, it would be quite inadequate to think of salvation as solely deliverance from the punishment of hell. It's much more. 
Men need to be saved from themselves. They need to be saved from the habits which, they have, which have become their fetters. They need to be saved from their temptations. They need to be saved from their follies and mistakes. In every case, Jesus offers men salvation. He brings that which enables them to face time and to meet eternity. When we think in terms of Jesus saving, we're not just thinking in terms of, okay, I got a um, a get out of hell free ticket. We must understand that not only is, is he concerned about our eternal state, he is concerned about our present state. We must understand that Jesus did not simply save us from something, he saved us for something. In Romans chapter 8, we see where believers will ultimately be glorified as we are saved and delivered from the presence of sin and spend eternity with God. Have you ever thought about the fact that one day all those things that are issues, all those things that are classified by sin, classified as sin, all those things that we struggle with or deal with on this planet will be no more. If nothing makes you praise God, that makes you praise God. If nothing makes you just wake up in the morning like, oh, Lord, I got hope. Let me go forward. That should be that thing. Knowing that One day, it's all good. Jesus saved us to secure eternal fellowship and relationship with the Father. By saving us from our sins, Jesus made reconciliation with God possible. It is this reconciliation that allows us to approach God as our Heavenly Father. By His grace and not by our works, we are saved for an eternity with God, worshiping Him, enjoying Him, and being loved by Him forever. So as we close out, I want, you, I want to think in terms of, or I want to pose a challenge and a charge. At the start of the series, Jason talked about how he does less marveling and more grumbling during the season. How many of you guys remember Jason saying that? Okay. Jason, I'm putting you on blast, brother, wherever you are. Unfortunately, he's not alone. I must admit that, that as I get older, I often resemble that remark. So much so... <laughs> That in a text a couple of weeks ago, my oldest child, my son, referred to me as Derenezer Scrooge. (laughs) I had to embrace that. With the parties and festivities and gatherings and decorating and gift giving and traveling and eating and all the other stuff on our holiday list to do, I am challenged and I often wonder Do we do more celebrating of the season than actually proclaiming the significance of the incarnation? Although we say all the right things about Jesus and we say all the right things about Christmas and we say all the right things about the Advent, I wonder, and I start first by wondering looking in the mirror, I wonder if I'm thinking the right things about Jesus. As I'm walking into the store and the Salvation Army guy is ringing the bell, do I take time to really check on the condition of his soul? We can give money, and that's nothing. When we're walking, we tell happy holidays, Merry Christmas, whatever we say, do we take time to either pray or specifically talk to somebody about the Savior of the world? Do we specifically even have a burden for that? Advent Advent is a season where believers set aside time to observe and focus on the nativity of Christ. But I would dare to say the story of the nativity, as important as it is, actually falls short of answering Charlie Brown's question of, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? 
1965, when the special aired, Charlie Brown, like most folks, like, like most, like most folks in the culture, was disenchanted with the commercialism, materialism, and hedonism associated with, in his situation, the holiday play, but I would say generally with the holiday. He was looking for answers. In 2023, 53, 53 years later, folks are still asking, is there anyone who can testify about the meaning of Christmas? Is there anyone who won't just talk about hope and peace and joy, but will tell about a Savior in whom they can find and experience hope and peace and joy. Lifeway Research reported in 2021 that only three in 10 unchurched Americans, like 29%, 30%, say that a Christian has ever shared with them one-on-one -on -one how a person becomes a Christian. This is in the United States. Only 30% of people can say that a believer told them about the gospel. Four in 10 unchurched Americans reported that they have never had a Christian explain anything relating to the gospel, church, or what it means to be a follower of Christ. We got to do better, church. I got to do better. We've been called by God to go and tell somebody. We cannot just depend on the missionaries that we support, the Sunday school teachers or the elders to do this job, to do this work. Jesus is our Savior, so this must be our challenge. The Advent season focuses, the Advent season, this Advent season, our focus has been on the question, what child is this? Answering this question results in a set of paradoxical statements. What child is this? This child is a king in a manger. What child is this? This child is God in the flesh. This, what child is this? This child was born to die for our sins. Despite the set of paradoxes, the message in this series that we've been going through during this Advent season, these messages have provided clarity and helped to deepen our understanding and appreciation of the incarnation and the hypostatic union. It allowed us to see Jesus as truly God and fully man. Hopefully today we've recognized that the Son was sent to be the Savior of the world. And next week, Randy will share how Jesus is our great high priest. This series of messages has gone beyond the scope, I believe, of our initial question of what child is this, what child is this as we seek to, and we read it every week, to engage the culture. We must recognize that by the power of the Holy Spirit, like John, we too have an authentic, passionate, and efficacious testimony. A testimony that boldly proclaims what the term Savior describes, and that the term Savior not only describes who Jesus is, but it describes what he does. Not just who he is, but what he does. Savior is a noun and a verb for all the elect of God. Those referred to as his people, that's us folks. His sheep, that's us, folks. His friends, his church, that's us, folks. And the sons of God, that's us, folks. This Advent season is an opportune time to testify that Jesus is in the saving business for all that believe in him throughout the whole world. For all that believe with him without any distinction of nation, of age, of sex, of state, of condition. Christ is the Savior both of the souls and the bodies of these. 
from all their sins, original and actual, from the power of Satan, the bondage and curse of the law, and wrath to come. And he is the only able, willing, and complete Savior who saves with an everlasting salvation. During this Advent season, we must accept the challenge and embrace the charge to proclaim the most important message. And what is that message? A Savior was born in the city of David. This Savior's name is Jesus, and Jesus saves. Amen.